Amen. You have your Bibles, I ask you to turn to the book of James. We've been working through this for quite a while. We're up to chapter 5, and we're only going to try and pick on one verse this morning. James 5 and verse 12. Give you a minute to find that. You can use my coat if you're cold. <laughs> James chapter 5 and verse 12. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. As a young man and listening to that verse, I would hear the word swear and I'd immediately go to profanity. <laughs> I, I, I'm not swear. Well, that's true, but that's not what's being discussed here. Um, if you need a verse to remind you that um, using profane words is not glorifying to God, you can see that over in Ephesians 4 and 29, where admonition is to let no corrupt communication proceed out of our mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying or building up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So that's a very broad standard. So not just words that we consider cuss words, um, but no corrupt communication. Nothing that's vile or um, anything that tears down. Rather, what should come out of our mouth should, should build up. It should be ministering grace to those around us. Okay, so we're, just, so we're not talking about cursing in this verse in James. We're talking about something else. We're talking about oaths or swearing. All right, James is actually alluding to something that showed up the first time in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you go back with me to Matthew chapter 5, we'll see what Jesus said about that. Matthew chapter 5, and in verse 33, he said, Again ye have heard that it hath been said of them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. So he's saying this is what you've heard before. You should not forswear yourself. That's not a word we use. It basically means don't commit perjury. And if you're saying an oath, you don't need to break it. You don't need to give false testimony. You don't need to be lying about things that have happened in the past, and you don't need to be lying or not following through on an oath that you're saying for future action. So that was the old... Old Testament um, standard that they already heard. He's going to give some additional insight into it. So thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. Whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Okay? So swear not at all. So these oaths that were common were, on one hand, describing past events. This is what happened. I swear. Or describing, I'm going to do this, I swear. All right, so you've got two different things being considered 
and they would swear by something greater than themselves. Um, Jesus here is saying, don't. Don't swear by heaven. It's not yours. That's God's. Don't swear by the earth. That's not yours. That's God's. Don't swear by Jerusalem. It's the city of the great king. Who's the great king? It's God. <laughs> right? Neither shall thou swear by thyself. Your own head. You're not yours. You're God's. You're bought and paid for. You don't have control over yourself. Right? You're not sovereign. He said, try and change your hair color. Right? Without going and getting some dye. Right? But rather let your communication be yea, yea. So if you say yes, what that should mean is just that. Yes. As opposed to, I say yes, but there's a question. You don't really trust me. I haven't dis- demonstrated myself to be trustworthy, and so I've got to add some extra layer so you find me credible. That's what the swear- swearing was. It's adding some extra layer to it. All right? When you say no, it should mean just that. No. No, it did not happen to future events, or no, it will not happen. I'm not going to do it. All right? When we break those oaths, it's a compounding of sin. It's wrong to lie in the first place. Agreed? Well, when you lie and then you put an oath on top of it, you're sinning twice. It's like a multiplier effect. You know, in math, you get exponents. What's bad? Well, then you square it. It gets more, right? You're adding layers of your sin. Right? Swear not at all. Not by heaven, nor by earth, nor Jerusalem, or thy head. But let your communication be yea, yea. So yes means yes. Or nay, nay. No means no. Whatsoever more of these cometh of evil. Alright? Evil means they're uh, hurtful effects. You get yourself in trouble. Okay? Now, God swore an oath. And this is kind of interesting. Go over to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and in verse 13, says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessings I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. So that after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. It says, for men verily swear by the greater. They find something greater than them and they swear to testify to it. And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. So if you've got two parties and they're uh, upset about something, if you have one swear this be the case, you know, it's an affidavit today. You sign that, this is the truth. Um, And if you're lying under that, that's perjury. That's a crime. So they can put away the strife. It says, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, his children, the immutability, immutability, can't talk, immutability, the unchangingness of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hope to lay hold upon the hope set before us. 
which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entered into that, entered into the, and entered into that within the veil, whether the forerunner for us entered even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I read a great deal, and you probably zoned out. God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to bless, that all the nations of the world were going to be blessed by him. So you had there the early indication that that God's chosen were broader than just the natural Jews. Okay, But he made this promise, and he swore an oath, and he swore an oath by, there's nothing greater than he could swear by than himself. And so, one, God who cannot lie, nor can he change, you have a very sure and steadfast assurance that what he said he was going to do was going to he was going to do. That's the difference between you and God. Right? If God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. He cannot lie about it and he cannot change. He can give an oath. Right? There is no doubt of what it's going to be, particularly involving future action. If you or I give an oath on future action, is there doubt? You better believe it. Right? Whether it's willful, whether we're neglecting to do what we said we're going to do, or whether there's just factors beyond our control. You're not sovereign. There are things that change that it can make it impossible for you to perform what you've sworn you're going to do. Have you still breached the oath if there are other factors? Yeah. Is it still wrong? Yeah. Should you have made the oath to begin with? No. So go back to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. It's right after Hebrews. Hebrews, James chapter 5. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, same things the Lord mentioned, neither by any other oath. Don't. But let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. This condemnation, literally the word means a decision against. You know, so when the judge rules against you and the gavel comes down, you've been decided against. You get yourself in trouble. Right? So if you were to break that oath, it's the same as being sworn in in court and intentionally lying. Right? That's, that's called perjury. That's a crime. The judge can hold you in contempt right then if he wanted to, or the prosecutor could bring a case against you. You've lied on the stand, and it would have to be pretty blatant for them to do that. You know, you know, I said, you know, Will was here with me. He didn't commit the murder. And then the prosecutor brings up the video of Will there shooting the guy. Right? It's pretty obvious that I've lied about him being with me. He could bring a case to me. Now, fortunately, I'm not having to worry about that. But whether it can be proved or not doesn't matter for our standard. Whether we can be caught in the lie doesn't matter. We need to be truthful in all that we say, both about events in our past and things in the future. Do you have full control over things in the future? No. Don't make promises that you can't guarantee. Right? I learned this lesson the hard way as having kids. Right? There is no worse torment than having to listen to a kid to whom you promised something was going to happen when it turns out you can't follow through because something has changed. Right? And in their eyes, you've lied to them. Yeah. In a way, you have. We have to learn to be very careful about, you know, right, the expression, Lord willing, Lord willing, and if we live, we'll be able to do this. And so, you know, a couple years ago, camp got canceled from COVID. I 
mean, that was awful. The kids were terribly upset. And so this whole time we've been getting to it, it's been getting closer and closer. Well, Lord willing, if we're able to go, I think, you know, just everything of being very open and honest about I cannot guarantee this. Right? Not speaking beyond my control or power. Alright? So we've got honesty in all that we do, all that we say. Both and when we're describing past events, we should be faithful witnesses. We should be so faithful that people should believe what we say without having to say, well, you can believe me now. I swear, I promise. I don't know if it's been your experience, but it's certainly been mine, that the more someone has to tell me, I swear, I swear, I swear, the less believable they are. Same thing for future actions. We should be dependable. That if we say we're going to do something, we follow through. Even if it's inconvenient. Even if the circumstances change, and sometimes it's to our loss or detriment. Following through on our word is important. But we shouldn't take the oaths of these absolutes, right? Because if we fail, then we've added to our failure, right? Now, some people take this verse and go to what I would consider an extreme, and that is um, the question of, well, is it wrong to be sworn in in court? Some, some take that position. Uh, I don't think so. I'll give, give you my, my logic here. Go to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and down in verse 13, it says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, submitting to the king, or unto governors, some kind of lesser authority, as unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For it is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So, our general rule is that we are to submit to the ordinance of man. Now, the limitation on that is when it directly conflicts with something that we're prohibited from doing or something we're required to do, then you have the ability to disregard, just like the apostles did. They were told um, by the Sanhedrin, you can't preach Jesus anymore. He says, well... Who should we listen to, men or God? You judge. And they obviously listen to God more. So is this one of those cases? I don't think so. Um, I think that the custom of being sworn in to record is to notify the solemnity and to get you to that point where you understand that if you lie, you are going to commit a crime. I think the real intent of this verse goes to our life, our day-to-day interaction. How many of y'all get sworn in in court? Hopefully not very often. Right? That should be an extremely rare thing. So, but how often do you speak? How often do you make promises? How often do you describe something that's happened in the past? That can be pretty much every day. Right? And so the broad picture of your life, should you be using these oaths to bolster or reinforce your testimony, your words? And, and the answer there is clearly no. Should you be making promises beyond what you can do or perform or should perform? No. I think this is referring to the broad, you know, the 99% of your life rather than just looking at the, the pigeonhole. 
Um, you may disagree with my assessment. Um, I'm, I know that there are ways that you can go on record in court without officially having to swear in if it bothers you, but I think this goes more to our look of our pattern of our life. Our life, our integrity, what it, does our word matter to us? Does our conduct follow through? Everything about us should be consistent. That every time I say yes to something, you should be able to believe he means yes. He's someone he can rely on, either that it's happened or that he will follow through. All right, so we should be honest, true to our word, both within the church and those without us, that we should have an honest report about um, in the general community. No additional layer should be required for folks to believe what you say. This is a pattern. This is not just a one-time thing. This is your whole pattern of life should reflect that. That's how you gain credibility. All right? So to kind of flesh out this concept, I want to go back to the Old Testament and look at the book of Judges and look at the circumstances that led up to a very foolish oath. Okay? Let's go back to Judges chapter 10. And we're going to cover a little bit of territory here, but I think it's, it's worthwhile. All right, so set the stage. I don't like jumping into context without, well, jumping in without context. Everyone knows about Moses leading the children out of Egypt. Right? Joshua goes in, they conquer portions of the promised land. Right? Joshua and them die, that generation. And then you have a period where there's no king, there's no prophet, but there is judges who get raised up by God to lead the people. Now what the pattern is, is that the people depart from serving God, they start getting into idolatry, they get their tails whooped by their enemies, They've got folks all around them that hate them, and so they come in and they invade, and then they cry out to God, and then God sends a judge to lead them in the battle, and they have a period of freedom, and that period that they continue to serve him faithfully, um, and then that judge dies, and then the pattern starts over. They stop serving him. Um, you remember Gideon, right, the guy who was testing God with the fleece, right? put it out wet, put it out dry, all that. And then later he had, what, 300 men that he had to fight this big old battle, and he didn't fight at all. They just stood up there with pots and trumpets, right? And the Lord gave the battle, all right? A little bit after Gideon. Gideon has a pretty uh, large family. He winds up having about 70 sons, plus one guy who was um, born from a harlot. And that one guy who was born from a harlot decides, you know, I'd really like to be in charge. And he has all his brothers killed, except for one. He missed one. And he becomes king of a few cities, and that doesn't go so well. Um, and uh, he's eventually killed. This is when the woman chunks the millstone off the top of the tower and cracks his skull, and he's very embarrassed about being killed by a woman, so he has his armor bearer stab him. Right? Fast forward about another, let's see, 20, 50 years past that. you got a couple more judges after that. And so we're... And then they die. And then they die. Right? And this is when we pick up. <laughs> So 50 years past that bad son being expired, all right? So Judges chapter 10, and this is uh, about 300 years after they've come into the promised land, all right? So that in your timeline on your head. So they've come in, you've had a period of judges about 300 years. The whole period is only about 400, so we're about three quarters through, all right? So 10 and verse 6, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam, or Baal, and Ashtoreth, 
and the gods of Syria, and the gods of Zidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the children of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, and then forsook the Lord and served him not. All right, so they've got all these neighbors around them, and they basically said, yeah, we'll just, oh, you're worshiping this guy? Okay, we'll pull that in, and this guy over here? Okay, we'll pull that in. And they're just kind of, it's got this mutt religion, where they're just, yeah, whatever, whatever goes. And they're, you know, they're not serving the God who brought them into this land. They forsook it. All right? Uh, just brief aside, what will be some examples of idolatry today? Because we don't bow down to stones, and so obviously we don't have a problem with idolatry, right? <laughs> I think it's Colossians uh, 3, 5 that says, uh, covetousness, which is idolatry. No covetousness, desiring stuff, right? Money, houses, cars, toys, food, experiences, vacations, recreation, coveting all the stuff, right? That's all. That's probably our major idol in our culture, right? Covetousness, desiring stuff. What's another one? Probably self. You know, we're the the Instagram generation, right? Self-promotion, pride, vanity, ambition, ego, fame, applause. We want success. Those are probably our two major idols today. So let's not get up on our high horse and look down at them. They had they had natural stone and carved figures that they were putting in front of serving God. We put other things. Right? So they had departed from serving God. And what happens? The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and of the hands of the children of Ammon. All right, so Philistines. Y'all remember them? A little guy named Goliath. He wasn't little. Right? The giant. He was a Philistine. Right? That would come later. The Philistines... Uh, we're over on the coast, um, Gaza Strip. You heard about that in modern times with Israel? That's that's the region over there where the Philistines hung out. They were over on the Mediterranean coast. All right, so you got the invasion from the guys on the what's that west, and then the children of Ammon. These were Lot's descendants. Um, Moab and Ammon were his descendants. They're over on the east. So you have like this kind of pincer move where you got folks being invaded on the east and on the west. All right? They're having kind of a rough time. Well, they had forsaken God. God was angry. He sent his enemies among them from the east and the west. And that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. Eighteen years, all the children of Israel that were on the other side of Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. All right, Ammonites, Amorites. There'll be a quiz. Two different groups of people. Okay? So it sounds like the bulk of Israel, which is on the Mediterranean side of the River Jordan, they were being vexed that year. It sounds like before that, there had been 18 years where the Ammonites, coming in from the east, had invaded into that land that Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, this is great, this land's great for sheep and cattle. When we come in, we don't want to go over, just give us our land here. Well, the people they had conquered had been the Amorites, all right? Og and Sion, king of Bashan, like... Those are the ones that they whooped up on. They got their land. Right? It's adjacent to the Ammonites. Okay? So Ammon has come in and they're conquered basically all that tribe that's on the, the area that's on the far side of Jordan. Okay? Moreover, the children of Ammon passed over Jordan to fight against Judah and Benjamin against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was sore distressed. All right? So the war's not going well. Not only have they basically conquered everything that's on the far side of Jordan, They've come in now over, and they've got um, you know, incursions into the main part of Israel. Right? Not, not a happy day. Okay? And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We've sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and served Balaam. So they acknowledge that they've sinned. And the Lord kind of answers them pretty harshly. The Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians? 
and from the Amorites, and from the children of Ammon, and from the Philistines, and the Zidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the uh, Amorites did oppress you, and ye cried unto me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Yet ye have forsaken me, and served other gods. Wherefore, I deliver you no more. Go, cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. So they had given some lip service of we've forsaken God and we've served Balaam, but he's saying, you haven't really, right? You go, go call unto them. The children of Israel said unto the Lord, we have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. So they've got humility. We'll take the consequences. Deliver us only, we pray thee this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them. So before that point, they hadn't put away the strange gods. They still had them. They still had their little, you know, temples and groves and other things that they were worshiping these false gods. So now they're putting them away. They're having some period of reform. They put away the strange gods from among them, and they served the Lord. And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Then the children of Ammon were gathered together and encamped in Gilead. All right, so there's a mass gathering of their foe, the Ammonites, over in Gilead. Gilead is a region within uh, Manasseh and Gad and Reuben. Where exactly in there? I can't. I haven't found good geological or geographic descriptors, but somewhere over there. It's a big region of Gilead. All right? And so the enemies gathered together there, and the children of Israel, they gather themselves together, and they encamp in Mizpeh. I don't get to worry about Mizpeh because that just means watchtower. There's at least five different locations that reference Mizpeh that are kind of bounced around. So which exactly what this one is, I don't know. But it's at a watchtower that they gather together. And the people and princes of Gilead said one another, What man is he that will begin to fight against the children of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. All right, so they need a leader. Right? This is a time where there's no king. They haven't had a judge for a while. I mean, this has been going on for 18 years that they've been whooping up all on that side of the river, and then now they're crossing the river and whooping there too. We need a leader. Who's it going to be? All right, and then it's going to give you a little bit of a backstory about a guy. His name's uh, Japhath. 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 Now, Japhath the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. All right, that sounds good. And he was the son of a harlot. Gilead begat Japhath. And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his sons grew up, and they thrust out Japheth and said, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. All right, so they kicked him out. He said, Nope, You're, you've got a lower birth. You're not gonna, we're not going to divide the inheritance with you. Get out. All right, and so he had fled. He had fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. Where's Tob? No idea. It's only referenced here in the next couple of verses. Um, so... Wherever Tob was, that's where he was. And there were gathered vain men to Japheth and went out to him. All right, so he's a leader. He's a leader of vain men, which means worthless. I mean, you can imagine kind of some thugs and robbers, um, those that are kind of ill repute. That's who he's gathered around. But if you're in the middle of a battle, you got someone who's already leading men, well, maybe he'd be a good choice. And so it was when the children of Ammon made war with Israel, the elders of the Gilead went out to fetch Japheth and went out, of the, and went out to the land of Tob. And they said, come, come be our captain, that we may fight. And he, he does not miss the irony. He says, you know, didn't you hate me and cast me out, expel me out of my father's house? Why are you come to me now that you're in distress? Um, and they said, you know, therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon, 
and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So he's saying, not just, you know, will you be, you know, the captain during the war, we'll, we'll make you be the leader of us. You know, that's, that's, this, is, this is our carrot. Please come and fight for us. And Jathas said unto the elders, If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? Now they had just promised that he would, and now he's questioning it. Why? He doesn't trust them. Right? The elders of Gilead said unto Japheth, The Lord be witness between us if we do not so according to thy words. All right, so this is the first occasion of swearing. He didn't trust them. They had already demonstrated themselves to be not very trustworthy. And so they're swearing. You know, the Lord, Lord can be testified that yeah, we'll do this. Okay? Then Japheth went with the elders of Gilead, and the men made him head and captain over them. And Japheth uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpeh. Right, so he's got some words that he's going to be uttering, and they're uttering before the Lord. So this is referring to the vows that he's going to make. All right, so then you're going to get into this message battle. It's not really a battle, but you know, kind of a, a communication back and forth between him and the king uh, who's been there and whooping up on him for a while. Here's the letter he sends to Ammon. What hast thou, the king of Ammon, what hast thou to do with me that thou came against me to fight in my land? He's like, why are you here? Right? Notice that no one has asked this yet, right? They, they were so deficient of a leader. So he sends a letter saying, why are you here? And this is what the response is. Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from Arnon even to Jabbok and unto Jordan. Now therefore restore these lands again peacefully. All right. So the degree of the land that he's asking for, um, Arnon is the southern border of their lands. Right beneath that is Moab. God said you can't go into Moab. And so when they were coming in, they had to go the long way around. They went around Edom to the south. They went around Moab. And Arnon is the southern border of that land on the far side of Jordan. Jabbok is up far north, right? And then Jordan. So it's got basically the whole chunk. Everything that's on the far side of Jordan, that's what they're saying. They're saying, give that back to us. Now, it wasn't theirs when they got there, which is the irony. All right? Restore the lands. So he sends a messenger. Here's what they said. Israel took not the land of Moab, nor the land of the children of Ammon. All right? Moab and Ammon, those are both the descendants of Lot, Abraham's cousin. God said they wouldn't get their land. They weren't entitled to it. Same thing for the land of Esau, of Mount Seir, Edomites. But when Israel came up from Egypt and walked through the wilderness under the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, they sent messengers into Edom asking to go through, and the king said, nope, and you got to go around. They sent the same thing to Moab, and he said, nope, and they had to go around. And they went along the wilderness and compassed the land of Edom and Moab by the east side of the land of Moab and pitched on the other side of Arnon. And came not within the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. Again, that's the river. It separated this land from Moab. Now remember, Moab, that was the king Balak, hired the soothsayer Balaam to curse them. They weren't even invading the land. They were just going around them. Um, and he's still wanting to cause trouble. Well, now the upshot of that is the Lord's going to bless them and use Balaam to bless them three different times. Right? So they're there at the border of Moab. And this is 300 years ago. And Israel sent messengers unto Sion, king of the Amorites, and king of Heshbon. And Israel said, let us pass through. And he didn't trust him to pass through, and so he came out to fight him. Well, they fought him. They whooped him. They got his land. They sent the message to the next king of Og. He came out uh, to fight him again. They whooped him. They got his land. These are both Amorite kings. 
right? And they possessed all the coast of the Amorites from Arnon, southern river, Jabbok, northern river, wilderness to Jordan. So now the Lord God of Israel hath dispossessed the Amorites from before his people, and shouldest thou possess it? Will thou not possess that which Chemosh, Chemosh, that's their God, thy God hath given thee to possess? So whomsoever the Lord God shall drive out from before us, them will we possess. Now art thou any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Right? He says, are you, are you somehow in a better position to claim this land than Balaam back then? Did he ever strive with Israel, or did he ever fight? As far as we know, no. They never came out in open battle. They just had come to this, this uh, spy craft or subfuge or trying to curse him. While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns and Erer and her cities and all the cities along the coast of Arnon, 300 years... Why, therefore, did you not recover them within this time? So why are you making this case now? All right. It's kind of hard to put yourself in this scenario. Right? You don't, you just, right? There's a lot of funny names. We don't really know the region. Let me give you an equivalent. All right? So Texas is a state, right? Before Texas was a state, it was part of Mexico. Right? Before it was part of Mexico, it was part of Spain. Right? Spain had claim to that since like the 1500s. Imagine if Spain invaded Mexico today, saying, the U.S., uh, we want our land back. We've already lost the land to Mexico, which is what happened to the Amorites. They lost it, the Ammonites lost it to the Amorites, and then Israel got it from them. It would be like Spain coming to us today and invading Mexico and said, we want our land back. Right? It's already been removed and gone for hundreds of years, but now they're invading. So this is kind of a very thin argument that they're making. All right? And so he, he calls him out. He says, I haven't done anything wrong to thee. We haven't hurt your nation. We whooped up the nation that you had lost to, and we possessed it. God gave us this land. All right? Howbeit the king of Ammon hearkened not unto the words of Japheth when he sent him. All right? So 29. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Japheth, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, passed over Mizpeh of Gilead, the watchtower in Gilead, and from Mizpeh of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. All right? So he's going to fight. And he vowed a vow unto the Lord. He swore an oath. If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hand. So one, he's making a deal with God, saying, God, if you do this, then I'll do something. Then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Okay? So, you can imagine what happens. He goes over against the children of Ammon and they whoop them. Right? They, then they, they fight them. They win. They get the whole land back. All the cities that were in. Right? He goes home. His house is in Mizpeh. And what comes out of his door? His child. He has one. A daughter. His daughter comes out of his house and she's got timbrels and she's dancing because they've just won. Daddy's got a big victory. This is exciting. I'm going to be the first one to give him a hug, right? Sometimes the kids fight over who's going to be the first one to give parents a hug when you come in the door. His daughter came out to meet him with timbrel and dances for she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass that when he saw her he rent his clothes. He's mourning already and said, Alas, my daughter... Thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me. Now, that's a very unkind assessment on his part. 
The daughter didn't do anything to trouble him. She didn't bring him low. His own mouth did. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. He made a vow. First thing that came out of his house, he was going to give it to the Lord and give it up as a burnt offering. And she came unto the Lord uh, very humbly here and said, My father, if thou hast opened the mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which proceedeth out of thy mouth, forasmuch as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. The Lord held up the portion of the deal that he had proposed. And she asked a favor. Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. Give me two months to kind of mourn the sadness of this situation that I'm going to die um, before I've had a chance to be married. Um, And so he did. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father who did with her according to his vow which he had vowed. And she knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to to lament the daughter of Jatheth the Gileadite four days in a year. Let me be very clear. The Lord never called anyone to make a human sacrifice. He was not right to do that. He was wrong to make the vow. So both the vow and the follow-through were wrong. If he had not followed through, that would have been wrong too. So this is not an endorsement of human sacrifice. In fact, there are other spots where God explicitly you know, upbraids people for, for, for that. So don't take that message away of that somehow we should, because often in the Old Testament, it is a history of what happened, not what should have happened. And it's not saying this has happened and therefore you know, it was a good thing. You know, there's examples of polygamy in the Old Testament. Nowhere does it say that that's okay or right. They were wrong to do it. David had many wives. He wasn't right to do that. Same thing for Solomon, and it got him in a lot of trouble. Okay, So the, the, the takeaway from this is not, oh, it's okay to sacrifice stars. No, he was wrong. He was wrong to open his mouth. Right? There's a big difference between whatever I'll give it to the Lord and I'll give it to the Lord as a burnt offering. Samuel's mother said, if you'll give me a child, I'll give it to the Lord. And she did. When he, she, she had been barren. She hadn't had any children. She was able to have a child. And she sent him and put him in the Lord's service. He served the priest Eli all his days. He grew up to be the last judge at the end of this period. He was the last one before he go into the period of kings. So he opened his mouth and he swore something that he should not have sworn. And he compounded his, his error. Okay. It was a very... Very foolish vow. It's wrong to say it. It was wrong to do it. But it also would have been wrong for him to breach it. Okay. We need to be very careful what we say. I've been very convicted about that verse about studying to be quiet. <laughs> um, and Proverbs is full of admonitions, and I can't quote one to you right now, but about the, the difference between the wise man and the foolish man, if one retains their silence. And that the foolish man, even when he's silent, is thought wise, it's when he opens his mouth to remove all doubt. And so we should be careful with our words and be sure that what we commit to, that we're willing to follow through with, and that it's right. Okay? Now, just to finish the follow-up of this story, because it doesn't stop here, um, there winds up becoming a civil war over this. 
And so one of, how, how do you do that? You have this massive victory. Well, at this time, when you have these massive military victories, you know what you get? Spoils. Stuff. You get to take all the things that, all the dead guys, you get all the dead guys' stuff, and that's, it's a pretty major economic boom. Right? Well, the children of one of the tribes of Ephraim get really upset that they were not included in this. And they sent messages unto Jephthah, saying, Wherefore passest thou over to fight against the children of Ammon, and did not call us to go with thee? We'll burn thine house with thee. We'll burn thine house upon thee with fire. That's real neighborly. These are, the, these are Israelites. These are their brothers. Now, this is the second time that the tribe of Ephraim has tried this. First time, you know, nearly 100 years ago, they did it with Gilead. He won this great victory. Ephraim says, well, you didn't call us. We didn't get the spoils. And, and he kind of has to talk them down. He says, well, you captured two princes. You know, I may have, you know, we may have fought the army over here, but you got these two princes, and it kind of mollified their pride a little. Yeah, we're pretty good. Yeah. Well, here, uh, Jephthah doesn't take that tack. He said, I did call you to help, and you didn't come. I and my people were at great strife with the children of Ammon, and when I called you, you delivered me not out of their hands. You didn't come. And when I saw that you delivered me not, I put my life into my hands and passed over against the children of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hands. Wherefore then are ye come unto me this day to fight against me? And rather than trying to mollify them and back down, they armored up. Then Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead smote Ephraim because they said, Ye Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. They insulted them. That was their motivation for this fight. Was they had insulted them. So they allowed their pride to get all bent out of shape. And they went to go for a civil war over it. And so the Gileadites won. They, they just whooped up on them. So much so that the Ephraimites are fleeing. And they're trying to get back over the River Jordan. The Gileadites took the passages of Jordan before Ephraim. And so it was that the Ephraimites, which were escaped, said, Let me go over. That the men of Gilead said unto them, Art thou an Ephraimite? And he'd say, Nay. Then they'd say unto him, Say Shibboleth, and he would say Sibboleth, for he could not frame to pronounce it right. Y'all ever heard that word, the Shibboleth? Right? It was a, it was a pronunciation test. You know, it's like having a Yankee come down and say say Yonk to, right? or Would you did you, or some of the other southern words that they'd have no idea, right? You you know where they're from pretty quick. Well, it's the same thing. It's it's, it's a word to give away that they could not pronounce this one, and so there they are guarding the fords. You couldn't just cross the river at any point. So these are the passages where you could get through to escape back to your land. And they'd say the wrong word, and they killed them. And they killed them, a lot of them, 42,000. They took them and slew at the passages of Jordan, and there fell at that time 42,000 people. Right? And Jephthah wound up judging Israel for six years, and then he died. Right? So modern-day trivia, as Russia's invading Ukraine, there is a particular word in Ukrainian that... Um, Russians can't pronounce. So I, I, I can't pronounce it either, but it means bread, and they've been using that to give away or try to figure out where Russians are in disguise or saboteurs, that they're using that same concept of shibboleth. Um, I don't know. It's a type of bread. But anyway, I thought that was, that was interesting. I came across that. All right, so a couple other examples of rash oaths in the Old Testament. Um, how about Esau and Jacob? 
Esau comes in from the field one day. He's so hungry and faint, he's going to die. My children are like that, right? Sometimes. And Jacob says, well, I'll give you some food if you sell me your birthright. Right? And he says, well, what's my birthright? Now, birthright translates to you get a double portion of daddy's inheritance as being firstborn. So he's giving up a big chunk of the inheritance. He says, well, what good is it going to be if I just die here of hunger? Right? And so he swore to him. He sold him his birthright. You ever think about how he didn't go back on that? Now, when I was a kid, we'd make promises. Yeah, I'll trade you this Pokemon card for this one or whatever. Those deals never lasted five minutes, right? It was immediately undone because our word didn't mean anything. Or parents stepped in and they uh, took took care of it. Um, But even in that scenario, Esau selling something so big and so uh, significant in his life, it wasn't undone. He had given his word... And that was it. Was it foolish? Yeah. But did it last? Yeah. Um, let's see. Another foolish oath. How about uh, when Joshua was invading Canaan and the Gibeonites tricked them, right? They, uh, they said, hey, we're from a long, long way away. Look at our shoes. Look, we started, they were brand new shoes, and now they're worn out, and our bread was hot out of the oven. Look, it's all moldy and dried and falling apart, and the wine that we got, it was fresh, and it looks it's just terrible. What they do? They outfitted themselves with all that terrible stuff because they only lived three days away. Well, God had given instructions for them, don't make any leagues or peace treaties with anyone within um, the nation. So your, your instructions are to kill them all and conquer it, that if you leave anyone in there, they're going to be a snare to you. Well, Joshua and them look at these evidence that's been produced. They don't consult with God, and what do they do? They open their mouth, and they make a peace treaty with them. Well, these are far away, so we'll just make a peace treaty with them. And there was a plague under them. They couldn't go back against it. They had already given their word. They couldn't break it, and it, it caused them trouble. And in fact, later, hundreds of years later, you know, a couple hundred years after what we've just looked at, Saul would try to break that treaty that Joshua and them had made, and it would cause a terrible plague among them. It was during David's day that it would show up and they'd have to actually hang some of Saul's remaining sons and grandsons because of it. That's how significant and how enduring it was. Um, another rash oath, uh, old King Herod, right? John the Baptist is arrested. Herod's stepdaughter is dancing before him and she does a good job apparently. And he, he opens his mouth and says, What do you want? I'll give you anything you want, up to half the kingdom. Now, did he mean that? I don't think so. But he was being magnanimous, and he had all his lords, whatever, his birthday, he was showing up. And she asked for something that he didn't really want to give. He was afraid of John the Baptist. He was afraid of the people. Um, but because of his opened his mouth, he had to follow through. And that's why John the Baptist wound up getting beheaded. Um, last one. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he was arrested before he was sent to Rome... Forty guys swore an oath. We're not going to eat or drink until that joker's dead. Now, they were not able to kill him. God had told Paul specifically, you're going to Rome. He'd come to him, you're going to Rome. And so uh, the plot was actually foiled um, by Paul's nephew. He had heard about it. He went and told the centurion. The centurion said, I'm not keeping him here. I'm going to get him out where he can be safe. Um... You think those 40 guys were able to follow through with that oath? (laughs) They weren't able to kill him. Think they had to break it? Probably. Was it a foolish oath to begin with? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I'm not sure about that. So, all right. So let's go back and look at James chapter 5. Just a, just a moment. We only covered one verse, right? But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven nor by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. We should be trustworthy, reliable, dependable, so that if I am describing something that's already happened, you should be able to believe me without having to add in these oaths. And if I'm committing to doing something in the future, you should be able to believe me without adding in these oaths. Because if I break either one, I'm compounding my error. And you're compounding your error. And I didn't mention this earlier when I was talking about the difference in the courtroom. And one of the reasons it doesn't bother me. What you're swearing there is only about the past. As you're sitting on that stand, if you open your mouth and speak truly, you can be 100% accurate. Whereas if you were making an oath about something in the future, there's no way you can do that because you're not caught. Hopefully these thoughts have been a benefit to you. Lord bless you.